DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints, and The Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We are now to the fourth point that you've brought forward for us in this study of Catholic social teaching. Wonderful values for us to really take into our hearts and to come to know and to be able to articulate to others out in the world essentials, truth, freedom, justice, and love. Four words, many different meetings <laughs> to so many different people. Help us That's to right. know what the church teaches on those four words. Well, again, just like point number three, these uh, four values come from Blessed Pope John the Twenty-Third. Again, more practical uh, implementation from that great pope. It's precisely because there's so much confusion about it, I think, that these values were put forward. And it's, the, it's these values that inform how we view the principles, and we'll, we'll see that, I think, as we go on. But you really have to start, I think, because of a lack of education. And, and John XXIII makes this point in Mater et Magistra again. Mm-hmm. And he brings out all four of these values in Pacem and Teres. It's precisely because there's a lack of education, a proper understand, understanding of what truth, freedom, justice, and love is or can be that we have to spend time on this. And it's rooted again in, in properly understanding the human person. So we start with something like truth. Um, I've had students and, and, and friends of mine who've gone to very, very good universities that are very, very expensive and sit before very, very smart philosophy professors who will start off Philosophy 101 by saying there's no such thing that is true for everyone, everywhere, at all times, regardless of your gender, your race, whatever. There's no such thing that's true always and everywhere. There's no such thing as an objective truth. You can just hear the bomb going off, can't you? I mean, just this little <laughs> nuclear cloud in, in this young person's uh, entering into college and then going home, and the Catholic parent is going, Oh my gosh, what have I done? <laughs> and what you just described has happened, I mean, you know this, mm-hmm. it's happened to so many Catholic families. They send their kids off to schools. The first thing they hear from their philosophy professor is, you don't have to do anything your parents told you to do because there's no such thing as something that's objectively true. Mm-hmm. They have no authority. Of course, the bright students now, and they are out there, the bright mm-hmm. students will turn to the teacher and say, is that true? Is what you just said true? Is what you just said true for everyone, always, everywhere, at all times, regardless of your gender and race and creed and culture and time of life? Mm-hmm. It's a self-contradictory statement. It makes no sense. Um, but people still peddle it, and it still you know, it, it rings true for the student because they get all excited that, hey, you know, this is what college is all about. Uh, there's, 
there's no no truth I have to bind myself to, or truth is so completely relative and, and dependent upon my own experience. We were talking about that in the last point. Mm-hmm. Um, truth is an objective thing. We know truth object, uh, exists because for it to be otherwise would be nonsensical. It would, would make no sense whatsoever. We know truth exists. We're positive about that. What we argue about is what that truth is, and that's fine. But let's not pretend that it doesn't exist or in some cases agree to disagree, truth exists. Now, there are metaphysical truths, and there are you know, contingent truths, and all sorts of different truths, but truth exists. Absolutely. We know this. Mm-hmm. And so much of our life, of the human person, is directed toward trying to discover that truth. Mm-hmm. One of the, the lesser-known social doctrine documents is from Vatican II, uh, Dignitatis Humanae, um, on religious liberty. And it begins with the statement that the human person interior, the human person yearns and seeks truth, particularly truth about the divine, about God and and our relationship and obligations toward him. But there's something interior to us, natural about the human person, that seeks out truth, seeks some sort of of definite answer to the question, why are we rather than not? And this is what the Holy Father, John Paul the Great, says in Fides et Ratio, is that this is... Truth is something that we recognize as being authentic, an authentic desire and yearning on our part. When you're in a relationship with someone and uh, the person you're in love with, whatever, doesn't quite meet up to your standards, isn't, isn't laughing at all your jokes or isn't doing various things, we, we can get resentful of that. We can get angry. Why is that? Because there's something interior to us that realizes, understands that there is a better way of behaving. There's, there's an ideal to love. There's, a, there's an understanding of a desire for a self-sacrificial love, a love that, that meets my desires on all these various levels. We're drawn to truth. We're drawn to some sort of perfection. And that's natural to us. And so truth exists. And those who would say otherwise are probably trying to sell you something. There are those who struggle with that definition of truth because for them they feel truth is something that should be black and white yeah here is the truth here is it's or this is a falsehood mm-hmm. how do we know then what is true you start to approach the truth um, in the formation of your conscience and all the rest of it you start to approach the truth through relationship again christ communion through relationship. Um, St. Augustine has a wonderful analogy for what we understand to be faith, um, the, the grace of faith, the act of faith, which is a, a, a decision, and an assent of the will to something we believe to be true. The analogy that St. Augustine uses is, um, and remember he's writing at a time that didn't have a gen, you know, genetic testing or blood types or anything like that. He said, how do you know your parents are your parents? The fact that you look alike doesn't prove anything. Um, the fact that all your friends and relatives say that you're their child doesn't demonstrate it. You didn't witness having come out of your mother's womb exactly. You, you're not quite sure. You can't demonstrate, demonstrate that in the fact you are their child. But you believe them. You have faith in that. You would say right now that you will always believe they're your parents. Even if there were some sort of evidence to come up tomorrow, you would still believe they were your parents because you have a relationship with them. Because there's nothing that would, 
no, no reason, no motive for them to lie to you about this. And you know them to be good and holy people, people who want the best for you because they fed you and cared for you. Why would they make something like that up? Why would they lie? We, we make decisions of that kind of faith all the time. We engage in truths like that. We, we live our lives by truths like that all the time, and they're rooted in our relationships. The relationship we have with our parents, the relationship we have with our spouses and our friends. And the same thing goes with the faith. Uh, in point of fact, when, when, when St. Irenaeus starts to make the argument for apostolic succession and starts saying, we know that um, the, 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 the bishops are successors to Peter because they had relationship with so-and-so who was taught by so-and-so who was taught by John who was taught by Christ. And he does that in, in his book uh, Against the Heresies. St. Irenaeus goes from, from the Bishop of Rome all the way back to, to Jesus. Mm-hmm. because they had relationship. It was one relationship after another, after another, that passed on the faith, passed on truth. So when we're looking for truth, we look at our relationships. Right? We, we garner truth from our parents. We garner truth from, uh, from those we, we love, from our spouses, from our friends. And if we are in relationship with Christ and his church in communion, then we also garner truth through the church through mater et magistra, through mother and teacher, says John the 23rd. Mm-hmm. So we engage in that truth primarily through those relationships, and then in the discernment, in the spiritual life, and in testing those truths through real-life living, then we come to a better understanding of what that truth is um, on a practical level. But ultimately, as the popes have said, and as, again, Pope John Paul the Great has said, we, we learn the truth because truth has a human face, and that truth is Jesus. Mm. That's why the Gospels are so important. Precisely right. Precisely right. And for us, the basic fundamental truth is the value of each human person, the human dignity. It goes back to that Baltimore Catechism, doesn't it? It always seems to. Yeah. <laughs> why were you created? To know him, to love him, to serve him, and to be happy forever with him mm-hmm. in eternity in heaven and because we were fashioned that way for that purpose that means my neighbor was fashioned for the same purpose and the same reason and we have to respect that yes and allow them their dignity that is a fundamental truth yes exactly and that's i'm glad you brought up the book called baltimore catechism because that there is a value to that you we, we understand not just who we are but what we're made for um this is rooted not just in some sort of whim by you know bishops on the East Coast. This is rooted in a classical philosophy that touches back centuries, millennia, even before Christianity began. This notion that we we can know what we are and we can know what we're made for, what the Greeks would call our telos, our end. What are we What are we driving for? What's the truth of that thing that we must go towards? And in Christianity, we believe we're called to be happy with our Lord forever in heaven, to love, serve, and be with him forever in heaven. That's what we're made for. And so by knowing that truth in faith, by knowing and grasping that truth, then we can better understand who we are and we can make better decisions about the things we do. That's why truth can be found in the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. in Mother Church. Mm -hmm. And it 
connects again over and over. We can now trace it back all the way, just as you pointed out, Irenaeus showed us how it goes all the way back to Jesus mm-hmm. himself. That's the beauty in the recent scholarship that's been done on translating the works of the fathers of the church, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. as well as the, the, that group that in between the doctors of the church. But I mean, you can see now, you can trace all of this back to the fundamental starting point of Jesus himself in the, the gospel that he preached. Exactly right. And we can trace it back to the creation he created, right? The, the people he made us to be. This is precisely why you know, I've said before on this program, I've said that uh, an engagement with the social doctrine is also an engagement with literature. It's an engagement with, with culture. It's an engagement with philosophy. Um, there's a reason why there was a wonderful program uh, out, of, out of Kansas many, many years ago, a great books program um, founded by some very good Catholic men um, who um, presented the classic works of literature and philosophy, poetry, um, to their students, and the, the university ended up having to end the program because so many of them were converting to Catholicism. It was hmm. a state program. When, it, when encountered with the truth of the human person, as that's portrayed and given to us um, through, through literature and through the experience of human persons throughout time, we begin to understand our fundamental natures and can begin to understand what we are called to be. This is why we have education. This is why when you talk about a liberal arts education, it's a liberal arts because by, by exposing us to the the, the great wealth of human wisdom throughout time. It introduces us to the fullness of who we are as natural human beings, the, the natural fullness of who we are. And that, in knowing what we are, the truth of who and what we are, provides us with then liberty, liberal liberty in, in the Latin, libertas, which in English is translated as freedom, which then gets to the next point. A perfect segue. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to talk about freedom. In freedom, we have to be first be founded on the, that fundamental dignity of the human person. And, it, and if you look at the history, particularly the modern history of, of the human struggles toward understanding who and what we are, a lot of it is a struggle with the proper understanding of freedom. Oftentimes, we want to believe that freedom is the ability to do what we want, whenever we want, however we want, so long as we're not disturbing the public peace of somebody else. Um, but that's a poor understanding of freedom, and it's an understanding of freedom that has um, caused a great deal of, 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 uh, of ill, uh, and in fact, a great deal of suffering over the years. And just as an example, I'll use two examples, one from, um, from literature, from Dostoevsky. Mm. Um, he wrote a, 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 a novel uh, in the late 1800s, 1870, 1871, I think, uh, called The Demons, or The Possessed, depending on the translation. And in this book, The the Possessed, there's a character named Kirillov. And Kirillov is a young man caught up in the intellectual, philosophical revolutions of the 19th century uh, and this great struggle for freedom. And Kirillov determines that to be free, Mm -hmm. to be ultimately free, there cannot be a God. Because if God exists and I am not he, then I'm limited. I, I owe him. I'm beholden to something that has created me, and so I can't possibly be free to do whatever I want. So I have to be able to reject God. I have to be able to demonstrate that I am in point of fact God or that I, I, I rise above whatever claims upon me God might have. 
And so Kirillov comes to the conclusion, all very logical and sensible, right? Mm -hmm. That to demonstrate how free, in fact, I am, I must be able to reject the fact that I am. I must be able to to negate myself and and to kill myself. Mm. And so we find in, in The Possessed by Dostoevsky, Kirillov sitting alone in a room, shaking and sweating with a revolver on his lap, trying to convince himself this must be the act, this must be the thing that demonstrates my freedom, and he ends up taking his own life. We recognize the, the ridiculousness of that position, and yet we have a culture that encourages our young people to engage in slow deaths constantly to demonstrate how free they are. Mm-hmm. Or you take another example, the Marquis de Sade, the very beginning of the 19th century, a man who was hailed in, in the years past as um, you know, a, a liberator of, of human sexual mores. In the, the, the Hollywood film Quills, he's portrayed by Jeffrey Rush, and he's portrayed as this kind of misunderstood, genius, misfit, literary uh, uh, fellow who is oppressed by that mean Catholic church and the, pr- you know, the prudish sexual mores of, of his time. And if only he had lived in the modern 20th century, why, he'd be some great figure. In point of fact, however, he was a beast of a man who was put in prison several times for sexually assaulting many different people uh, and many different times, and I'm not going to go into the details. Mm-hmm. But here is a man who, who, uh, who understood that to be as free as I want to be, I ought to be able to choose the most horrible acts conceivable to demonstrate that I'm not guilty. I don't feel any guilt. My conscience is not pricked by even the most heinous of acts and that is ultimate freedom. Mm. Freedom has to be rooted in the truth of who and what we are, directed towards that good, so that we understand that freedom is not what our world tells us it is, the freedom to do what I want, when I want, to whomever I want. Rather, freedom, authentic freedom, is the ability to do what is good for us. The ability, the chance, the opportunity to pursue what is good the knowledge and the chance to to be more ourselves, that is freedom. That's truly being free. And the delineation needs to be made that it's not about feeling good. Yes. It is about what is good for us and helps us to grow into who we were designed and created to be, that our natural gifts can come to the front, to the foray, to be able to help others in that great puzzle of how we intermix in our communities. Precisely right. St. Paul, I love St. Paul. He has that line in, uh, in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, where he says, I don't understand the things I do. I do that which I hate, and I don't do that which I want to do. That's a human experience where we engage in behavior that's self-destructive, and we don't want to do it. I know what happens when my wife makes a brief stroganoff. It's very good. I eat too much of it too quickly. It happens every time. I don't mm-hmm. want to do that, but it happens. And I also would love to be able to get up early in the morning and work out and, and pray instead of waiting to the end of the day, whatever. I'd love to be able to do that, but I don't. I don't. I put it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, why does that happen? What, what, what is that part in us? That's, that's the concupiscence. That's the thing we have to overcome. Um, and so to, to make that point about not feeling good, we know instinctively as human beings, if we look at our lives, if we're introspective even for a moment, we know that by doing the things that feel good, very often we end up doing the things we that end up causing us harm in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know to start to avoid them or want to avoid them. Freedom is the ability to, to, to stop doing that which I hate. 
and to engage in those things that I love. That's authentic freedom. It was pointed out to me, I remember all those years ago back when I was in formation through my school years, mm. that in the communist system, it was the freedom from mm-hmm. as opposed to the freedom to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And communism and those type of isms, those types of social systems would say that the state needs to come in to be able to free the person up from having to have those concerns. Yes. Yeah. That was the argument that Marx would have used. The argument was, and again, this stems from a faulty understanding of the human person, which is why truth of the human person needs to come first, right? Because Marx and and, and, and the 19th century um, intellectual uh, disease was the notion that the human person is determined by uh, their material selves. Marx argued that if we can solve the problem of class warfare, if we can solve the problem of the, the battle between about stuff, battle between classes about stuff, if we can solve that problem through violence, he was clear about that, if we can solve it, then we solve the essential problem of human alienation, we solve St. Paul's conundrum, and then we, we, make, we make people free because they're free from having to worry about stuff. Mm-hmm. But because he didn't understand that we're not just material beings and that that, that sense of alienation, that 19th century notion of alienation being, being sort of foreign even to ourselves, um, it's, it's their version, the 19th century version of St. Paul's conundrum, because that's not rooted in, in stuff but rather in the human heart, you can't, you can't produce real freedom. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who you know I, I love, is a fantastic mm-hmm. man. Um, and and it's you know I, I don't think it's a mistake that I've mentioned two Russian novelists now, uh, Dostoevsky and 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 Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn was a child of the revolution and um, w- bought in the hook, line, and sinker to the Marxist uh, system. He was bound and determined to be the great greatest writer of, of Russia by demonstrating the, the, the importance of the materialist dialectic and Marxist philosophy and Leninist practice. Mm-hmm. That's what he believed he was called to do. It wasn't until he was less than flattering of Stalin and found himself in the gulag for eight years that he began to rethink his position. And so he was a man of the 20th century who really lived through that experience, lived through being part of that mentality, the oppositionist mentality, and lived in a community in the gulag where, where one had to survive uh, by finding communion with others for the sake of, of simply living. And then came out of it and said, beautifully, he said, the, the foundational delusion of the 20th century is the notion that the battle between good and evil is a battle in politics or can be solved within the realm of politics. Good and evil is a bright line written in the middle of the human heart. To be truly free is to understand that that battle is not in stuff or over stuff or in the world of politics. To be truly free is to know um, that we're called to be more ourselves, that we're called to be better selves, that we're called to the truth of the human person, which as Catholics, as Christians, we believe to be to love and serve and know God and be with him in heaven forever. You've spoken of both freedoms, in, in essence, the both the paradigms of freedom, the freedom to or the freedom from. Mm-hmm. 
in that marriage of freedom and truth, we go back and we look at what is that fundamental truth. It's the dignity of each mm-hmm. human person. Mm-hmm. And the thing that throws us all off, the fact that we're all created so different. Exactly. And that's what makes it a challenge yeah. because we are not able to fit each other into cogs. Yeah, very good. Because of yeah. the of the gifts that whatever it is that God is bestowing on this particular person mm-hmm. in in the value of that particular person. And that's where the challenge is, isn't it? Well, it is. And that's why again all of these points they tie into each other so well because this is about when you, know, you when you have a communion you're not talking about some of, of assimilation. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you ever follow that Star Trek Next Generation? Mm-hmm. You know the Borg. This is not about assimilation. This is about recognizing the beauty of of diversity, uh, but unity, unity through diversity and in diversity, and despite diversity, um, uh, that's part of what this freedom means. It's part of what this requires, and and this wonderful diversity that we have before us, this truth of the human person, this fundamental dignity that exists regardless of, of where we are in in, in the matters of, of diversity. Um, uh, maintains itself constantly, always, and it's a it's a diversity not just incidentally of of race or, or diversity of, of of financial means, but also diversity of ability. You think of the disabled, the mentally or physically disabled. You think of diversity of of, of mental capacities. That that true that too is also an aspect of of appreciating the truth of the human person and freedom. It goes back to that ultimate truth of how God creates. And you can look around in our world today and you see this gorgeous garden of all the different colors and different plants. And I'm reminded of St. Therese, the little flower, who mm. said, I could, if I could just be that one small, that little flower in that gorgeous garden, I don't necessarily need to be the big, beautiful plant. But it, that's when you put them all together, that's what, that's heaven. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. That that's uh, the, the what we are what we're given the chance for in freedom um, is to take be be part be be partakers uh, in the work of God in us and in, in the world. Uh, this is so fundamentally a part of the social doctrine that John Paul the Great actually says these very words in in Laborum Exercens on uh, in nineteen eighty one on the ninetieth anniversary of Rerum Novarum. He says, in, in labor, in the work we do, we become partakers in the creative process with God. And and gosh, is that not freeing? Is that not ennobling? Is, does that not bring up the dignity of the human person by knowing we're, we're working with God in, in the little things we do? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you, Omar. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, We hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.